Hello, Gap Year Universe. I'm Margot Brookfield. And I'm Julia Rogers. Welcome to Gap Year Radio, the show that brings you information and inspiration to plan a life-changing Gap Year adventure. Today, you are going to hear from Marco, a Gap Year alum who had a broad range of activities that he participated in on his Gap Year, touching on many different issues and interests. So, Julia, you spoke with Marco. Do you mind telling us a little bit more about his story? Sure. Marco had a really amazing gap year. He started it, as a lot of gap year students do, by doing a group service learning program with Friend of the Pod, Youth International. Um, And then he went on to have some more independent experiences. He had two different internships, one at a private equity firm in Europe and one working with refugees and people seeking asylum in Costa Rica that were from other Latin American countries. So as you can imagine, one could probably probably not think of two more disparate internships to engage in. Am I right? (laughs) Yeah. Very unique experiences, both of those. Definitely. So he tells us how those very different experiences kind of helped him, helped inform his, his worldview and how that's taking him into his college experience and his life with a better perspective on what he wants to do to make the world a better place. So inspiring. And I think really um, unique given the, you know, current refugee crisis that you know that we're seeing around the world and so I'm really excited to listen more to what he has to share through his experiences. We really do want to encourage young people to consider working with refugees and displaced peoples both here in the states and outside the country so I'm going to include a couple resources for you in our show notes on our website this episode. That sounds great Julia I think those resources will be a huge asset for students who are looking to get involved in this so you know without further ado let's get to it thanks for listening. Hi, Marco. Thank you so much for being on Gap Year Radio. How are you doing today? Good morning, Julie. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, such a pleasure. So I'm really excited to hear about your Gap Year, which you kind of broke down into a few parts. Um, First with a service learning program in Asia, then doing some uh, volunteering and travel in Central America and South America, and then uh, following that, a internship in Europe. So Why did you take a gap year and how did you go about kind of pulling all this together? I think there were a few factors why I decided to take a gap year. Uh, Number one, I was a year young for my grade. And I think there's a great anxiety that if I take, if one takes a gap year, they automatically fall behind or they lose a year. In my case, it was mathematically a no brainer. I was only catching up. So that was the first impetus. The second impetus was that I had traveled a great deal with my family but uh, rarely on my own. And the few chances I had to travel on my own were that life-changingly transformative that I thought, maybe it's time to get away from my family a little bit. I'm 18, I can do this, if not now, when? And I think the third big reason was I came out of a very intense preparatory boarding school and I had really been worked to the bone for four years, as I feel most kids have during the college process. And I knew that if I had to go straight into university two months later, my grades were not going to perform. I wasn't going to be happy. It was just going to be more of the same treadmill action. And so I really knew I needed some time to clear my head. Yeah, that's the case, I think, for a lot of students. So when you, were, when you decided that a gap year was the right choice for you, what kinds of things did you do to kind of start brainstorming and get your planning to organized? At first, it was really daunting. Um, because we like to think that we enjoy free will and a myriad of opportunities. But really, if someone just says, 
you have a year of your life, go do something. That's, that's, quite, a, that's quite a scary venture. I think I embraced that uncertainty in a sense. I kind of opened up a map of the world. I mean, do people even have maps anymore? And <laughs> I have I, several. <laughs> <laughs> but I did. I opened a map up and I genuinely asked myself, uh, and I admit that I did this with great privilege and with the support of my parents. I said, if I could go anywhere in the world, where would I go? And I highlighted some zones, and, and that was round one. And round two was, all right, I get there. That's wonderful. I can say I've been there, but what would I do? So then I started looking into programs, and that narrows it down a bit. And then, of course, you take into consideration the financial aspect, um, the safety aspect. Not, not all places are meant to go to at every mm -hmm. time. And I sort of just narrowed it down layer by layer until I arrived at a pretty feasible gap year schedule. Mm. Um, and honestly, that's what I would suggest everyone does. Start with big dreams and then slowly insert reality, not the other way around. Right. And you um, worked with Jane Saruyan from the Center for Interim Programs. And how was it working with a counselor to help you kind of take that brainstorming into actualization of plans? Yes, Jane was absolutely spectacular. I would highly recommend the entire institution was there with me every step of the way. I was uh, personally fortunate that Jane's offices were half an hour from my boarding school. Mm, nice. So I met her personally on, on two or three occasions. And anytime I had a question, it's, it just brings such a peace of mind that someone out there is double checking anything, right? Mm -hmm. So if you say, I want to go um, do marine biology research in Madagascar, right? You're just left to dream and let Jane tell you, well, have you considered the geopolitical situation? How is this going to mix with your flight from Zimbabwe, et cetera, et cetera? Mm. And I think it really keeps you in the limelight and enjoying the process. Definitely. So what you chose to start your year with uh, a program called Youth International. Um, mm -hmm. Friends of the podcast will remember our interview with Brad from season one. Mm -hmm. And how did, how did you find that experience? What was it like traveling with a group and kind of seeing a bunch of new places um, in that context? Youth International was fantastic, but I think it was fantastic insofar as it fit into the larger scheme of my gap year. Mm. Um, when I went into this gap year, I had one prerequisite for my parents, and that was that I'm not allowed to waste any time. And so I approached the gap year almost as if it were a school year. I divided it into three trimesters, and each trimester had a very explicit goal. My mm. first trimester, which I eventually chose Brad and Youth International to handle, was centered around self-discovery. I wanted to do something absolutely radical, something that I considered I probably wouldn't do on my own, or with my own money at a later date and time. And, uh, and that manifested itself in the form of South and Southeastern Asia. I think Youth International was very special because some things, and admittedly so, it's fine to admit, um, you can't do on your own. And I had this dream of hiking the Himalayas, and as incredible as that sounds, I can't do that on my own. And having a group of like-minded individuals who were willing to embrace the ups and downs of that adventure with me made all the difference. Because I can assure you, if I was sitting alone in a hostel near Annapurna Base Camp, not knowing the language, I probably would have cried myself to sleep. Uh, but being with 10 young, fervent, spirited adventurers, uh, Brad, who carefully programmed everything from start to finish, it was really magnificent. 
-hmm. And then for those of you that don't know, Youth International didn't just cover the Himalayas. We went uh, all throughout Nepal. We spent six weeks in India. India was the bulk of the trip. Uh, we did central India, and then we went up north to the Tibetan uh, exiles in, in refuge, really, in, Dra in Dharamsala. And we wrapped up the program in Thailand. Yeah, it's so cool. And India is one of those places, I always rate countries kind of like ski hills because I live in Stowe. <laughs> and uh, I consider India a black diamond country. It's okay. one of those places, it's fascinating, but it's logistically complicated and culturally complex. And it's not an easy place to navigate on your own. And it's, especially for a female traveler, it's not always Absolutely. comfortable to travel alone. So having that kind of group experience where you get all the amazing sights and cultural learning from it, but you do have that kind of like group cohesion to kind of work through a lot of those complexities is really special. Yes, I definitely would not recommend doing India on your own. Yeah, unless you're unless you're a seasoned traveler, maybe not for the first thing you do on your gap year. <laughs> precisely, precisely. I wouldn't right. kick off the gap year in that way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so moving on, you so you took a trip to Colombia. Um, was that uh, so? That was with your family. What was what was that like? Because well, I guess this is selfish, but I um, am thinking about going to Colombia with my family <laughs> in the winter, and I want to hear about what you did. <laughs> well, Colombia was. Uh was fascinating and, and, and spiritual in a way for my family because my stepdad was in the Peace Corps in Colombia oh, cool. uh, many, many years ago. He graduated from Boulder, Colorado, didn't mm -hmm. really know what he wanted to do with his university degree. He wanted to travel. He didn't have a lot of money. He entered the Peace Corps, bada bing, bada boom. He was sent to Colombia and he was in Colombia for two years, wow. after which he left and never returned. So that was sort of my dad's opportunity to show us, uh, you know, a very dear portion of his youth mm. and to return to a place that you haven't seen the stages of evolution for over 50 years. I think it really hit him hard. He was there before any of the cocaine wars and he came mm. after it was all done. I mean, he basically missed the entire middle chapter of the country. Wow. Um, but so we went to Cartagena for New Year's, which I thought was a gorgeous historical district. And then he took us deep into the coffee region, uh, into the mountains, such as Manizales, to meet all the people he had worked with when he was young. Oh, that's so cool. What an, what an awesome pilgrimage to witness. That's mm, really highly cool. recommended. Highly. Yeah. Very cool. And so, you know, one of the really big things that I wanted to focus on, even though it wasn't lengthwise, like a huge portion of the year, I find it very fascinating, was the next thing you did was to go to Costa Rica and work with their Commission for Human Rights on the refugee crisis. So um, I'm so interested to hear about how you found this opportunity um, and what you what your work was when you were there. Certainly, I was I worked with uh, a different uh, program, not the Center for Interim Programs, although Jane directed me to a close friend who in turn took care of me. I worked with CME. Oh, sure. With Jose. Correct. Oh, great. He's wonderful. <laughs> yes. So CIME then directed me to an institution called Fundación Mujer, which is Spanish for Foundation Woman or Women's Foundation. And they are a microfinance associate agency of the United Nations. That's a mouthful. What does that mean? Well, they're somewhat tied to the United Nations body in that they report and receive funding from the High Commissioner for Refugees. At the same time, they take on a much more financial and economic privatized approach than the bureaucracy of the United Nations. Um, they don't get caught up in the governmental cogs. Instead, they use the cogs of capitalism to mm -hmm. sort of 
uh, propel entrepreneurial seed capital and employment opportunities for refugees. So it was really the perfect place to be because I saw both the public and private sector workings. Um, I was there for five weeks and I loved absolutely every minute of it. I'm happy to go into more detail. Yeah. So and uh, what's your level of Spanish? Were you fluent or at least conversational when you went down there? I was uh, born in Madrid and my late father was Spanish, so absolutely fluent. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's very helpful, I'm guessing, with this type of internship. So, Certainly. yeah, what was your day to day um, working? Were, were you working directly with the women? And if so, what was what was the work that you were doing? I had an incredibly special, um, incredibly fortunate designation at the foundation, which in all honesty, I'm not sure I could guarantee to the next comer. Uh, but when I arrived, the foundation was in a very precarious situation financially. And I was the first intern in a while who came in speaking fluent Spanish. And I befriended the, the executive director, so to speak, rather quickly. And she did me the incredible honor of taking me under her wing. Mm -hmm. um, so most days when I showed up at the foundation, I quite literally just entered the executive director's office and she would close the door and the two of us would work together, you know, with the exception of some board meeting. Mm -hmm. uh, and I learned a tremendous amount from her. She obviously opened a great deal of, of access, of opportunities, because when there was this fundraiser, she would take me as her honored guest. Um, I'm trying to think what else she took me to. She met me. She took me to meet the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees himself. That's an actual wow. role within yeah. the United Nations. And I felt incredibly lucky that I could just uh, sit at the right hand of this extraordinary woman. Wow, that is really, really cool. Um... But, you know, one of the things I don't think a lot of Americans know about is how the Central American refugee crisis is impacting Costa Rica. So mm -hmm. what did you learn about that while working in this position? Well, it's quite fascinating. People don't really think Costa Rica when, when refugee crisis comes to mind. Um, but it's actually perfectly located as far as the Venezuelan crisis goes. Costa Rica has no military, uh, which is a massive, massive um, attraction for refugees from other Central American countries. I mean, it's rated well on the Global Conflict Risk Index score. Um, it has opportunities for low-skilled workers. So really, Costa Rica is becoming a haven for those that are seeking to leave their own countries. Venezuelan refugees are coming in by the thousands. Mm. Um, and I believe, if I recall from my time working with the foundation, 52% are women, which is nothing out of line with other statistics. It's about half and half. Wow. But 9%, and this is what's incredible if you think about it relative to the American standard, 9% of the population uh, has come in through either immigration or refugee asylum. Mm -hmm. um, it's really, a, it's, it's a hot spot to be in Costa Rica and to be dealing with these people. Every single time I took an Uber, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Venezuela. Right. You know, I just escaped six months ago. The government seized my business. I lost my daughter. Every single time I stepped into an Uber, I had a life-changing conversation. Yeah, I had that recently. I was in Orlando last fall, and I had a Venezuelan cab driver, and he showed me his his scars from the bullet wounds where the um, military had shot him during a protest. Um, it was a very informative Uber ride. <laughs> hmm. Actually, I think it may have been Lyft. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> these stories are, are just incredible and and heartening so what is the what are the feelings of the the ticas and ticos about the refugees is that are they very are they welcoming people with open arms is there hmm. kind of a back and forth about um how to deal with an influx of new people 
It's fascinating. You know, they say humans are more alike than different. And uh, unfortunately, we're more alike than different in our tendency to revert to nationalism. I was quite disheartened by how many Ticos and Ticas uh, were disillusioned with the incoming of these refugees who really had nothing but their hopes, dreams and uh, labor to offer. I come from a pretty liberal standpoint politically, and I think that such an influx could only work wonders for the country, but not, not anyone, not everyone agrees and nor mm. should they have to agree. Um, I think the key was finding those few people that were really determined to help. I mean, everyone who worked at the foundation must have been scraping by for minimum wage, but they worked because they worked for something that they believed in. Mm. Right. And I watched the despair in my executive director's face every afternoon when uh, it would reach 4.30 and everyone was starting to leave work and she would look at me and say, Marco, like, we don't have the money. I mean, mm. she literally lived with the day-to-day -day fear that the foundation would close. And I remember at, towards the end of my stay, we received an $8,000 check from Citi, uh, the Citi Banking Group. And I have a picture with her. I mean, her face just lit up. Those $8,000 literally changed her entire attitude towards her work. Um, but yeah. on a separate note, because I, I would like to mention this, I think for anyone who wants to enter this kind of work, there's a clear distinction between the operational work and the organic work. And I think what people don't realize is sometimes they're at odds with one another. When I first arrived at the foundation, I was constantly immersed with the refugees one-on-one, -on -one, face to face. And uh, for a while I had a videographic project going I, um, I must have interviewed 50, 60 refugees, something that was tremendously fulfilling for me, right? I would sit down and they would tell me their stories and I would listen. But eventually I realized that what they needed was not listening. Uh, and I, I could offer my compassion, but that wasn't going to change their lives in a concrete way. And that's when I turned to helping the executive director with fundraising mm -hmm. and philanthropic relationships and investor presentations, you know, some of the grunt work where you have to sit at a desk and figure out how to organize the PowerPoint slides for seven or eight hours, but in a way might affect these refugees' lives for the better in a much more concrete way than a videographic project. Um, so I did sense that turmoil between me, between choosing what was personally fulfilling and choosing grunt work that might have been more effective. Uh, what I will say, though, is those few encounters where I was face to face, it was a very rare and blissful moment of clarity. There are very few times in your life when uh, every single minuscule privilege you've enjoyed in your life is blatantly thrown out before you. I mean, I would sit before uh, mothers who had their babies murdered in front of them and their chemical engineers or brain surgeons and they're cleaning bathrooms for a living, and they haven't seen their siblings in 12 years, and they haven't eaten in 72 hours, and, and you're just so incredibly humbled. Like, where do we begin? Do I get you food? Do I get you a therapist? Do I get you a new family? I mean, it's really disheartening, and there's this moment of helplessness where you throw yourself into your work, and you say, the only thing I can do is help this woman uh, recover her chemical engineer license, right? Or the mm -hmm. only thing I can do is make sure this woman can pay her next month's rent. 
Yeah, that's well, I love all those points. And that's, I think, a really powerful point of view as well. One of the things that I think people, especially gap year students who are going into any kind of volunteer or internship where there's that there is that tension of of power and privilege it is really important to think inwardly about why are you doing this and where how can you be most effective and who who is really benefiting from your being there and so i think that that's it's really wonderful that you were thinking critically about that on the ground and didn't um kind of look back on it and be like huh i want i wish i had done things differently um instead of just thinking about my own experience so I think that that's that's really even though you know it was only five weeks i think that um that those kinds of experiences um with you're helping the executive director probably does have like you know lasting effects and also your obviously experiences there um are going to bring you forward with that kind of knowledge and sharing your story and sharing mm. the stories of the people you met so well one yeah. can only hope <laughs> yeah exactly exactly so it is it's one of those there's a dual benefit to volunteering that sometimes people think, oh, I'm just going to help other people. But really, I think that pe you, you, people need to understand the dual benefit of you're getting back as much as you're giving in perspective mm -hmm. and experience and, and all those kinds of things, if it's done well, right? Any other thoughts about working with a, um, I, I, I want to say like vulnerable expats or refugees, maybe, mm -hmm. um, and in that you know, it is a very emotional kind of work. So do you have any advice for people who may think that they're interested in it, but don't really know what they're getting into or just words of support for people who are who are connecting with this story? Excellent question. Um, I would say uh, have no expectations because at least in the U.S., we, we peg this very convenient face onto the immigrant who, you know, supposedly is trying to take our job. But I met all kinds of people, um, and just because a white person walks through the door, you know, that doesn't mean they're on the board of the foundation. They could be starving, too. And I remember uh, men came into the foundation, and at first they were a little insecure because, obviously, it's called the Women's Foundation, and they're like, mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm supposed to be here. Uh, I think the main takeaway is that people have very real problems, and people... Uh, require very real help and mm -hmm. if you're in a position to extend help it really shouldn't matter who the other person is that person across the table the other thing i'll say is um for the vast majority of people that are taking a gap year and i'm i mean to make no assumptions about where they come from but realistically in comparison to these refugees you're you're coming from a much higher place in society and you have to be ready for when the train hits you because there will be those moments where you not only feel utterly helpless, but you'll actually start to feel guilty and partially responsible. I mean, I had a very good friend from boarding school, a very dear, dear friend who lived, uh, who lives in Costa Rica, and uh, the parents invited me over for dinner a couple of times. They lived on the other side of town in a much nicer neighborhood, so I would leave the foundation once again, after just having sat down with these people that have lost their families, their jobs, they're hungry, they're homeless. And I would Uber to this neighborhood, you know, filled with the most spectacular homes and gardens and pools. And I would have a three-course meal in this beautifully decorated dining room. And suddenly it hits you like, wow, maybe, <laughs> you know, maybe I'm part of the problem. This system is not working if there's that disparity of wealth.
and don't get me wrong i'm i'm a fervent capitalist and uh and i don't necessarily believe in 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 certain redistribution of wealth policies but but sometimes you're just faced in circumstances where you really have to admit to yourself it's not fair right yeah which is an interesting transition because <laughs> your next internship was was working for um, a finance firm in yes. Amsterdam, yes. which you organized independently. Uh, so curious about hearing about the juxtaposition of those experiences. It must have been just completely different worlds. How was that for you? It was mind boggling. Um, and I think I intendedly designed it so I knew that the the contrast of my private equity internship with a refugee volunteering was um, was purposefully meant to highlight the pros and cons of both lifestyles. Mm. Um, where could I start? I, I entered this private equity internship with zero knowledge of finance. Um, they sent me a mergers and acquisitions encyclopedia two months before. Oh my God. <laughs> it was 500 pages long and they said, here, take a look. And I think I started dissecting the encyclopedia. And by the end, by the time I finished the book, I had acquired, because I kept a little glossary, I, I had acquired some obnoxious, like 2,000 new vocabulary terms, <laughs> strictly for the financial world. And I had taken another 70 pages in notes, whether that was Credit Suisse reports, uh, Warren Buffett on competitive advantage periods, market forces. I've never even taken an economics course. I mean, I really threw myself in the deep end. Um, and what was fascinating was I had come from an experience that was so contingent on people, and now I was delving completely into theoretical numbers. Mm. And I think actually some of the people that are most successful in finance are the ones that are able to interplay between those two worlds. Right. Because there are the financial minds that say, if I can just round this decimal, right, and get the growth capita, et cetera, to this level, and this will trigger the beta, and then the deal will come through. And there are people that understand that it's a human on the other side of the deal, and sometimes a firm handshake and a look in the eye will do it. Mm -hmm. um, it was a very, very interesting juxtaposition. Uh, if nothing else, the sheer disparity of wealth was mind-boggling. I mean, I worked in the top floor of the tallest financial center in Amsterdam. And naturally I wore a two, three piece suit to work most days. And uh, <laughs> just coming from a foundation that was struggling to pay rent. And sometimes the Wi-Fi would go out and we would all sit in the foundation for three hours and we couldn't do anything, you know, or the electricity mm. would go out and we couldn't do anything. And suddenly I was surrounded by financial analysts that were staying in the office until two in the morning, just working away at an Excel spreadsheet. I mean, it's, it's, it really, it's really mind boggling. Right. Yeah, no, that, that is. And it, so, you know, Buddha talks about the middle way yes. of, you know, the not, not extreme on either side. Do you, I mean, did you come to think about when you think about like life past your gap time and what you're taking away from these various experiences, what are you taking away from like the kind of maybe the balance of, of these two opportunities or how, how are you thinking about your future in relation to what you've learned and, and gained as far as knowledge on these on, on your year? That's a wonderful question. Um, I'd say on a general note, this gap year has been transformative because there's always more to see, but I feel like my spectrum has grown so much. I mean, I've had to interact with the, 
starving mother in a New Delhi slum and the managing partner of a capitalist engine. I mean, I would challenge someone to find a more disparate combination. Yeah. And moving forward, I, I, spent, a I, I spent a great deal of time in Dharamsala in northern India reflecting. I picked up meditation there. It's changed my life. I meditate every day now. I work as an ocean lifeguard and I take an hour in the mornings to walk down the beach and just sit and stare at the ocean and meditate. Um, there's something to be said about the combination of wisdom and compassion. Um, I don't mean to plagiarize at all. This is a, this is a completely Tibetan ideal. But mm. the Tibetans sort of believe that if you have no wisdom, you can't ever help anyone else. And if you have no compassion, well, you probably can't even help yourself. And, and it's really the mastery of both and the combination of both that allows you to change the world. You need to be able to think critically and you need to be able to connect compassionately. Um, and to me, that's, that's sort of brought about a calling for politics. I've always been very politically interested. Mm -hmm. And I think what we lack in the political landscape these days is, is both. I mean, we have the brilliant Oxford Rhodes Scholar, Harvard Law School, Order of the Quaff scholars. And we have, uh, you know, just because it comes to mind, like someone like Marion Williamson, who preaches love and, and psychic forces. But it's very <laughs> hard to find that combination of the two. Mm. And I was actually speaking about this at dinner with my mom, because she said, yes, but geez, politics is so corrupt. And there's no money in it. And if there's no money, how can you really make any change? And returning back to my experience in Costa Rica, where I found that that nexus between the public and private sectors, I think reporting at its heart is a very beautiful profession because you're reporting on very public issues, mm. but you're affecting change in the world through a very privatized manner. And I do, I do think that's something incredibly valuable that my private equity internship taught me. I mean, now I walk into restaurants and I don't think about the quality of the food. I think about the quality of the business model. Mm. And at the end of the day, you know, money's not everything, but money does make the world go round. And those who can understand money, better yet, those who can understand how to put money to work for the good of others, I think those are the people that own the future. Yeah. I don't think that, I think I want to leave it on that note because that is such a, really interesting sentiment and I, I look forward to replaying this and and <laughs> on the airwaves when you are maybe running for office someday <laughs> but we'll in see, any case maybe. um or or maybe just behind the scenes tensing your fingers and making things happen which is also <laughs> very worthy <laughs> well thank you so much julie i can't thank you enough thank you so much marco for sharing your experience and your your wisdom definitely gain some wisdom on this year <laughs> we'll be in touch right but yes thank you fantastic have a good day you too. You can find us many places on the internet, like Instagram and Facebook at Gap Year Radio or online at gapyearradiopodcast.com. You can email us your Gap Year questions or comments at gapyearradio at gmail.com. And lastly, you can download our show wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you have a moment, we would love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts so more people can discover Gap Year Radio. Thanks so much for listening. Mm -hmm.